0: Well, good morning, Marcel, you may be seated. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into the marvelous light. Last week and this week, we are examining Peter's sermon at Pentecost, a sermon that effectively launched the Christian faith. It was the first recorded sermon of the New Testament church. It started in a miraculous and marvelous way. The Holy Spirit descended upon the apostles, upon men and women, disciples of Jesus who were gathered together in unity and prayer, reading scripture in an upper room in Jerusalem. And they began to speak in tongues. Sound and the tongues attracted people. Jewish men who were from all over the empire gathered to a pilgrimage, Pentecost, and it sparked their curiosity. They came and they heard people speaking in their own language, talking about the gospel. Not just people, but Galilean fishermen, former tax collectors, people that didn't have access to education. There's no way they could have known how Libyans and Arabians and Romans speak. It was so crazy that some people were like, no way, I think they're drunk. That's the only explanation. They must have got their hands on some new wine. Last week, the story picked up. Jack talked about how Peter corrected that faulty assumption. He was like, look, guys, it is nine o'clock in the morning. They are not drunk, I assure you. If they're drunk, it's on the new wine of the gospel that Jesus is putting into new wine skins because he can't put it into old wine skins or else it would burst. In fact, Peter says, we learned last week, You should have anticipated this because it was prophesied by the prophet Joel that in the days after Jesus' resurrection and his ascension, in the latter days, the Holy Spirit of God would come to his people. Dreams, visions, speaking of tongues, proclamation of the gospel, all of these things would occur. And this morning, we pick up where we last left off, kind of midway through Peter's sermon here. Now, I gotta be a bit transparent with you. For the past week and a half, as I've been preparing for this sermon, I struggled a lot. Like, how do you preach a sermon of a sermon? It was like question number one, right? I came at it with all sorts of different angles of attack. None of them seemed to fit. I think probably it's because, in my opinion, this discourse Ranks among the top three in the New Testament outside of Jesus's teaching. So setting aside all of Jesus's teachings for a second, which ranked number one. If I was to look at sermons and discourses and songs, my top three are these. Peter's Pentecost sermon, uh, Paul's discourse at the Areopagus or the Mars Hill, which is where our church name comes from in Acts 17. Uh, And then Mary's Magnificat, her song that she sung at the pronouncement of her Uh, being pregnant with Jesus in Luke chapter one. How do you preach a sermon of a sermon? Especially one that is very precious to me. I've wrestled with this. Do we dissect the sermon, go line by line, see what's on the inside, explain theological points? Because this sermon is pregnant with theology. We could really spend weeks and weeks and weeks plumbing its death. Do I contextualize Peter's point? Do I say like, hey, this is what the first audience would have heard, and and here's how we should probably hear it as well. Those are all legitimate options. In fact, I have sermon outlines for all three of those. But when I came time to like put flesh on those bones, uh, it it didn't work for some reason. I came to this conclusion then. I had to step back and look at it for a second. First, uh, this sermon is inspired by God because it's recorded in Scripture. Peter's words are inspired by God Himself. At Marsa, we believe that the whole word of God, all of Scripture, is inspired. The way that Paul explains this is in 2 Timothy 3:16: that all scripture is breathed out. It's inspired. That's what the word inspired in spirit means breathed out by God, profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. We also believe that the Word of God is inerrant. In other words, it's God's Word. So it's sourced in truth. And because He is pure truth, it's going to be free from error. Every Word of God proves true, says Proverb 35. We also believe that the Bible is infallible, which means. It won't lead us astray because it cannot lead us astray. It's impossible to lead us astray. There are things that God cannot do, which sounds strange because he's omnipotent and omniscient and omnipresent. But check this out. Hebrews 6, 18 says, we know there are two unchangeable things. One of them is this. It's impossible for God to lie. Impossible. He can't do it. So if God has inspired Peter's words, there is not a lie coming out of his mouth. It's not erroneous. It is leading us towards truth. That was one thing I thought of. second conclusion I came to is that this sermon is actually prophetic. The way that Peter begins this section is this. Hear these words. It kind of is an echo of Old Testament prophets of, thus saith the Lord. So Peter is preaching this sermon from almost a prophetic position of Authority. He's speaking like a prophet. And no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. he says elsewhere in one of his letters, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the spirits. Not only is the word that Peter is preaching here inspired by God, but he's also being carried along by the Holy Spirit as he's speaking. The third thing I came to, the conclusion I came to, is that this is an apostolic sermon. It was preached by the one on whose confession Jesus promised this. I tell you, you are Peter, and upon this rock, I will build my church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Guess what we're seeing right now in Acts chapter 2? Jesus' words coming true. He is building his church on the rock of Peter's confession, on the words that the Holy Spirit is giving him in this moment. And that's crazy when you think about it. Because this is the same man who weeks before abandoned Jesus at his trial like a coward when questioned by a little girl about his accent, but is now standing in the center of Jerusalem proclaiming the gospel, as we'll learn, in front of thousands of people. What changed? What power possibly could change Peter from coward to bold proclaimer of God's word? Actually, we're gonna learn in his own sermon, he's gonna tell us. Fourth, this sermon launched the church of Jesus Christ. We're gonna see there's thousands of converts that will come join the church after this sermon. It heralded essentially the birth of Christianity. This sermon is like a touchstone in the final culmination of Christ's work to make all things new. This sermon is inspired by God, it's prophetic, it's apostolic, it launched the church. I am not inspired, prophetic, nor apostolic. This is a conclusion I came to. I am just like the rest of you, a fellow disciple, working out salvation in fear and trembling, desperately clinging to God's mercies every single day by my faith in him alone. Which means I have absolutely nothing to add to what Peter is saying here. I am like you, a recipient to what he's saying. And frankly, that's how I want to keep it. So this morning, I want to do something different. It worked in the first service. Let's see if it worked in the second service. This is something I've never done before. Instead of preaching to you, I want to be preached to with you. I want to allow Peter's sermon to be spoken over me and to be spoken over you and in doing so, what I wanna do is I wanna share personal reflections of how this sermon impacted me in my reading of it over the past week and a half. Consider this less a sermon or teaching and more of a devotional reflection for most of the time. We'll close with a more teachy, preaching type of a, a thing that we're used to. But if it's different this morning, that's why. I'm I'm giving you kind of a sneak peek or behind the curtain of how I approach the Bible in a devotional way because I I struggle to preach another person's sermon and I certainly, I don't know who I am to be able to tell you what Peter is saying as an inspired, prophetic, apostolic man launching our faith, right? So here's how this sermon affected me. Let's hear the first two verses. Men of Israel, Acts 2, 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourself know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. That's heavy. What an awful thing to pierce one's heart. I hear Peter saying to these men, y'all messed up bad. Bad. God sent his son, Jesus of Nazareth, his actual son, not some kind of like ghostly apparition, not some spiritual vision, a flesh and blood infant turned boy turned man whose name means God saves, from a town you're all aware of, Nazareth, up in Galilee. God sent that man to Israel. He sent him to me too. He sent him to you all. And he did so to get our attention. God divinely snapped his fingers at us. How? Through the mighty works, wonders, signs, that got me thinking, what are those? What is Peter talking about? I had to jog my memory. Oh, it's turning water into wine, healing a Roman official's kid who was about to die, healing a paralytic, feeding 4,000 and then feeding 5,000, walking on water, healing a woman with chronic bleeding, healing a blind man who was born blind, exercising demons, reattaching a guy's ear after Peter cut it off, raising Lazarus from the dead. That's the divine finger snap. I should be paying attention to these things too in the gospel. But once he had their attention, once he has my attention, we intentionally looked away from him. We ignored him. Worse, Peter said, you crucified and killed him by the hands of lawless men. You did that. Which, he says, was done according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. That's amazing to me. I have to take a step back and really process that for a second. Because it appears to me that Peter has just sashayed past some of the most burning questions I have about the relationship between human free will and God's divine sovereignty. Some of the hottest debates that Christians have, especially the nerdy theological ones. What's the relationship between human free will and divine sovereignty? Does God allow us to act in free will? kind of like a cosmic gentleman stepping aside, never interfering so that we can choose good and evil for ourselves, or is he like a cosmic conductor stepping in right at the exact moment to prevent us from choosing evil or to persuade us to choose good? Are you a Calvinist or are you an Arminian? Are you Reformed or Wesleyan, free will or fatalist? Because that's probably gonna determine my relationship to you, and if I'm honest, gonna determine my willingness for cooperation and Christian unity with you. So Peter's response here was like a gentle pat on the back. Stop arguing about the periphery. Grasp the center. Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. In other words, he's the cosmic king and he's in charge and he's absolutely sovereign. Nothing happens without his knowledge or permission or will. And you crucified and killed him by the hands of lawless men. In other words, we are responsible for our sin. Which one is it? Peter says, stop, get to the core." It's not that those theological conversations are unimportant, but Peter's telling me now those conversations must take a backseat the moment that they interfere with communicating the gospel clearly. Have I elevated peripheral theological convictions to the same level as plain and precious truths of the gospel? Well, so what if I have? Maybe I did it out of zeal. Maybe out of ignorance. But isn't that what the men of Israel did? Crucified Christ out of zealous ignorance. So they still messed up. Perhaps they thought what they were doing was right. The Sanhedrin convinced them that Jesus was a heretic and the Romans were probably gonna convince them that he was immoral, definitely a rebel. I mean, you can almost hear some of these objections about Jesus today to excuse our zealotry or our ignorance. Look, I love that Jesus guy. Love most of his stuff. His message about loving all people. Welcoming from wherever they come though. Really? What about our national identity? What about cultural integrity? Look, I love Jesus. I love his message about loving everybody, but when it comes to sexuality and he affirms that from the beginning God created the male and female, isn't that a bit heteronormative? I love the love your neighbor thing, great. But why does Jesus have to then go and say, love the Lord your God, as if he's the only one to worship? What about my God? What about my worldview? What about my opinions, my spiritualities? Peter is telling me this. Stop looking around and look up at the mighty works of God. My opinions about culture and sex and spirituality are irrelevant because there was a God-man roaming Jerusalem, healing diseases, exercising demons, walking on water, and raising people from death. His opinion about those things matter. But here comes my defense, my self-righteous advocate in the cosmic court of law. Peter said to me, you crucified and killed Jesus by the hands of lawless men. Me, literally, Kyle? I am an American, born, at the end of the 20th century on a continent Peter probably didn't even know was aware, like a lie, right, no way he knew that. How is it that I killed Jesus? I didn't put him on the cross, I'm no murderer, but then I remembered Matthew five, Jesus' own teaching on the Sermon on the Mount as if to anticipate my objection to Peter's sermon You've heard that it was said of those of old, you shall not murder and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But Jesus says, I say to you that everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to counsel. Whoever says to, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Well, how often have I harbored anger in my heart long enough to become liable to judgment? How many times have I insulted a brother or sister in Christ? enough times to be liable to the council of heaven. And how many times have I said, even muttered under my breath, that idiot, just this past week? Plenty. So making me liable to the hell of fire. That means I'm a sinner, and because Jesus went to the cross because of sin, my sin put him there. Yes, I killed Jesus. Are we sure? Go back to Paul to remind me who systematically teases these ideas out. For all have sinned and fallen short to the glory of God. He says in Romans chapter three, I'm one of the all, a son of Adam. And just as, one, and just as sin came into the world through one man being Adam and death through sin, so death spread to all men because of all sin, which means not only am I a sinner and a murderer, but I am someone who deserves death because of my sin physical, spiritual death. For Paul says, the wages of sin is death. So my sin not only led Jesus to the cross, but had I been present there that day, the words of my mouth would have been with everybody else, crucify him, crucify him. And in doing so, I have to admit, I put Jesus on the cross, I'm liable to judgment, I'm liable to counsel of heaven, I'm liable to the hell of fire. I killed God's son. Verse 24, God raised him up. You killed him, but God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it wasn't possible for him to be held by it. Well, praise God then that he rescued his son from death because of my sin. Yes, my sin. For our sake, God made Christ to be sin who knew no sin. He was willing to take my sin to the cross, but because he was innocent and righteous and God is just, the Father wasn't willing to allow the Son to remain in a state of death that I put him there. And apparently, what Peter says is this was the plan all along. Verse 25 For David says concerning him, and this is Psalm 16, 8 through 11, if you're curious. Psalm 16, 8 through 11 I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand. that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. If you won't abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption, you've made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. A couple of thoughts came at this point. Essentially, what Peter is saying is, even though sin, my sin put Jesus there, God was not going to allow Jesus to stay dead and that this was prophesied by David thousands of years before, meaning the resurrection should have been on Israel's mind. Immediately, there's an old side of me, the old skeptic, the naturalist, the materialist, the fan of the new atheists. Do I really believe in that resurrection, historical bodily, historical resurrection? Dead people... When they die, they stay dead. That's how things work. So what are you talking about a resurrection? Not only just a resurrection, but one that was anticipated a 1,000 years before Jesus died. Besides, part two on this, it's gotta be a way around that judgment. I want to escape this spiritual death that's coming. I wanna avoid the counsel of heaven. I wanna spurn hell for something better, but I wanna do it my way. I wanna do it by my truth. I wanna secure for myself my life. But God may have saved his son from me, but I want to save myself from him. I just need to clean myself up and remain clean, at least according to my conscience and the standards of the people around me and the people that I respect. Of course, I'm never going to let them in on what's going on in my own heart. I'm gonna keep that hidden deep to myself because then the charade falls apart. After all, I just make mistakes, I don't sin. I do sin. I don't sin as bad as the people around me. I'm going to put my hope in myself. I'm going to put my hope in people that I respect. I do respect David. I'm going to put my hope in what David has produced and the kind of person David is. Maybe if I just follow David's example, I'll find life. Verse 29, brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried in his tomb is with us today. Oh, That's what he's getting at. You can't put your hope in your superheroes. And man, if David can't make it, who can? David, described as a man after God's own heart, who's personally chosen by God to lead Israel, his people that he rescued from Egypt a man who struggled but endured to remain in his kingly calling to the end, who penned psalms and spoke prophecies and pleased God in worship. David was awesome, but he's dead, and he remains so. Why? The flip side to David's heart. He was an adulterer and a murderer. He kept a harem of women, destroying God's intended design for marriage. He veered from God's will time. And again, if David's work didn't save him because he was a sinner like me and he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us today, Peter said, then what hope do I have? What religion can save me? What philosophy, philanthropy, what politic can save me? So any hope I had, Peter swatted it away. Verse 30, being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with him an oath that he would set on one of his descendants, that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, that being Jesus, he, David, foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did he see, nor did his flesh see corruption. So my only hope has to be in the resurrection of Christ because that apparently is what David put his hope in too. If you really wanna be like David, don't follow in his footsteps, emulate his hope. What was his hope? in the resurrection of Christ, Peter says. But seriously, again, dead people stay dead. That's how things work. I've never met somebody who died, came back to life, and was like, you're not gonna believe the day I had. Death is final, right? So perhaps Jesus rose spiritually or ideally. Maybe he rose in the hearts of his apostles. Maybe it's just the concept of dying and rising that I need to really grasp and internalize. Like that myth of the phoenix, that's it. I can save myself, rise from the ashes of my own shortcomings to the greatness that lies dormant within. It's what Disney teaches me, it's what Oprah teaches me, it's what our culture drinks as a philosophy every single day. Peter says, nope, I'm not kidding. This Jesus God raised up and we all are witnesses. It literally happened. Jesus of Nazareth, bodily, literally, historically, for real, rose from death. The gospel records this. And I jogged my memory of all the times that the resurrection was witnessed. First by women at the tomb, by Thomas who touched him, Peter who dined with him, Paul who beheld his glory as the resurrected and ascended Christ, on the road to Damascus. He ministered to hundreds of people. That's the greatest miracle ever. So what Peter is saying is, you have to put your hope in the greatest miracle ever. But what does that make me? The man who nailed the innocent and righteous Christ to the cross, inciting the Father's power to raise him up from the dead. Do I even get to hope in that kind of resurrection if I wanted to? Verse 33, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he's poured out that this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David didn't ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Oh, So the resurrection of Christ, per se, isn't necessarily good news for everyone because one of the reasons God raised his son from death was so that Jesus could conquer his enemies and turn them into footstools. Am I one of enemies or am I one of the enemies of God? In sin... Paul seemed to think so. He called us enemies, Romans 5.10. It seems clear that Christ's mission is to make his enemies his footstool. In other words, to conquer them in judgment and counsel, to conquer him by their holiness. For he must reign until he has put all of his enemies under his feet. And Christ is waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet from 1 Corinthians and Hebrews. Peter... Am I, a sinner, the enemy of God, who, because Jesus has now been resurrected, is subject to conquering by Christ as his enemy? 36, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him Lord in Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Yes, in sin, I am God's enemy. I'm not his kid. I am by nature a child of wrath, just like the rest of humanity, Paul says in Romans 2, 3. And I will inevitably become conquered by Christ's holiness. What do I do? I killed God's son. God brought him back. He seems angry with his enemies. I'm his enemy. What do I do? That's about where Peter's sermon comes to a close at least the text that we are given of the sermon. He said other things, we know that. We'll see that here in a second. But Peter, at this point, leaves the audience, leaves us in a sort of pained suspense, a bit anxious, right? Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? In zealous ignorance, we killed the son of God. God brought him back. He's angry with us now, what do we do? It's a good question. You see, the bad news of sin ought to cut to the heart and it ought to lead you to that same question, what do we do? We ought to feel bad when we realize we've sinned. We ought to sense guiltiness when we know we've offended God. And I wanna be very careful about the way I say this, but I think it's really important to say sometimes in an overly therapeutic culture like ours, one in which God is merely a life coach and you are always a victim and the serenity and peace of your mind is your right, we make a habit as Christians of staving off conviction of sin. And we do it in little ways. We don't say we sin, we say we make mistakes. We say we messed up, we screwed up. Now, there are very real victims of oppression and abuse who need counseling and therapy. I know this firsthand because I participate in trying to bring Jesus' peace and healing to those people. I'm not discounting that at all because there is a very real call by God to enjoy peace that surpasses understanding. But there is never a circumstance when we ought to feel nothing at all when we've rightly recognize that we've willfully disobeyed God, never. And that's the reality that has set in for the crowd before Peter. They recognize now our zeal and our ignorance are not an excuse, we sinned against God, we feel awful, we're terrified, what do we do? Have you ever been there? That's not a bad thing, that's a good thing because that's the first moment you realized God is doing something to you, to save you. When he takes your heart of stone and replaces it with a heart of flesh and it starts to beat and you realize for the first time, whoa, I am a sinner. I don't just make mistakes, I don't just mess up. I am a sinner before a holy God. What do I do? What do I do? Salvation begins in the depths. It begins for us in guilt and in shame, in the tomb where Lazarus lies, because that's where God calls to you who were dead, come to me, we hear and we respond and we take the first step. Because even though it begins for us in shame, doesn't remain for us in shame. The alleviation of shame comes from repentance. Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, everyone in you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and for your kids, for your children, for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Repentance means Fundamentally, turning away from sin. If you are cut to the heart like these men were, if Peter's sermon has moved you to shame and guilt, repent, turn away from sin. Stop engaging in that. Cease pursuing him. Don't chase after her. Turn it off, set it down, look away, flee, whatever it is, you know what it is. The Holy Spirit tells you. But repentance is more than merely turning away from sin. Fundamentally, or more basically, it's turning towards something. Yes, repentance is turning away, but to do what? To turn towards something. You're turning away from sin to Christ. It's waking up one morning in a pigsty in a faraway land as a prodigal child and not so much turning away from that faraway land, but turning toward your father at home who's waiting for you to return with open arms. It's giving back all the money you illegally cheated out of people. Not so much turning away from that lifestyle, but turning towards Christ who's coming to your house today. It's, It's turning away from ugliness towards beauty. It's turning away from lies towards truth. It's turning away from death towards life. Repent, turn towards something better than what you're pursuing. Because you know deep down inside Answers aren't there, the meaning's not there, the purpose isn't there, the value isn't there, the belonging isn't there, the love isn't there. You're looking for it there, but it's not there because it's an idol. And guess what? Idols hate you. They're not your friends, they're your captors, they're your taskmasters. Christ is your liberator. Turn away from them, turn towards Him, feel God's salvation through. Baptism too, Peter says, that act of complete dependence on a power that's not your own. If you go down into the watery grave that represents death and the pastor or the person that is baptizing you keeps you there underwater, if you didn't bring your scuba gear, eventually you're gonna die. That's the point because you can't pull yourself up out of the water any more than you one day will not be able to pull yourself up out of being six foot under the soil. You need a strong arm to pull you up, which in baptism is the person baptizing you representative of God's strong arm to pull you out of your spiritual death and pull you out of your physical death. That water washing away from you is death retreating, not because of you, you were dead, you can't do anything, but because of God who has pulled you out of that state. And then Peter says, gives you the Holy Spirit, the comforter, the helper, the one who regenerates and convicts and teaches and equips and empowers you to walk with Christ. Not because you have to, but now because you get to and you want to. And this promise, Peter says, is for everyone, all people, everywhere, those whom the Lord, our God, calls to himself. God wants you. He wants a people to himself. And the great thing about God is when he wants something, it's good and he gets his way and you don't have a say in it. If God wants a people for Himself, He's gonna get one. Go back in time and ask Pharaoh how heedless and stupid it is to resist against God's will when He calls people to Himself. But how? I thought we were murderers who nailed Jesus to the cross. Enemies of God who we crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Yes, but praise God that that's not the end of the story. And Peter knew it. Verse 40, with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them. I don't know exactly what Peter said. None of us do, but I imagine his message synchronized with words like these. Romans 3, 23, I only read the first part of that earlier. The back end is the good news. For all have sinned and fallen short to the glory of God. You have all sinned and fallen short to the glory of God. I have sinned and fallen short to the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. You are dead in sin, but by faith you are alive in Christ. Romans 6, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so Peter cries out, verse 40, Save yourself from this crooked generation. Save yourself from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Like I said at the beginning, greatest sermon ever preached. 3,000 people converted after the Holy Spirit proclaimed his gospel through Peter. Peter. You know, Exodus 32, there's a story that these men in Jerusalem that day would have been very familiar with. You're probably familiar with it too. Back in Exodus, we learn about how God rescues Israel from Egypt. He makes a covenant based on his love to protect Israel as they're going to the promised land to covenant with them. God gave Israel laws to make the relationship work. First two rules had to do with just making it between him and them, like a marriage. We can't have a third or fourth person in this thing. It's just me and you. No other gods before you, no graven images, no idols. Israel agreed in concept, but they failed in practice because, like five minutes later, they built the golden calf and they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings, those gifts that are meant to go to God. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. But. God loved them enough not to let them die in their sin, so he kept his side of the covenant with them. But because of the wages of sin is death, Paul tells us, Exodus 32, 28, here's where we're going with this, that day about how many men died or fell. 3,000, sound familiar? God is telling a new story in the book of Acts. When 3,000 people died because of God's justice before Christ, now we see 3,000 people live because of God's justice in Christ. His holiness and righteousness and wrath collided on the cross with his mercy and grace and love. We put Christ on the cross to die, but mysteriously and miraculously we have been beneficiaries of our own sin because God is that awesome that he can do whatever he wants to take what we mean for evil and turn it into good. And that's exactly what he did on the cross. Joke's on us. We can't stop God from loving us. We can't. It's impossible. And it's proven to us because Christ rose again therefore. God did that for you. What are you doing? Repent. Show him you hear him. Respond to the love that he has given you. Repent from sin. Turn toward Christ and Christ alone in faith that he will forgive you, not only because he can, but that he wants to. He wants to. Die to yourself. Be raised again by the Holy Spirit. Save yourself from this crooked generation, all of you who are far off from God now. Come near to Him. He's waiting like a good Father to wrap you up in His arms. Come to Him. Let everyone whom the Lord calls to Himself come to Him and be saved. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that by your divine providence, You not only delivered this incredible sermon through our brother and your servant, the Apostle Peter, but you recorded it for us to read, that it may reverberate and echo in our ears and form our hearts some 2,000 years later. I pray a blessing in multiplying the fruit of that sermon in our hearts today. As we hear Peter's inspired words by your Holy Spirit, let us respond to them first in recognizing rightly that we are sinners and the cause of your son's death on the cross. But second, recipients of your grace and mercy and love through his glorious resurrection, let us be conquered by Christ's mercy. Let us lay down our arms and stop warring against you in sin and be wrapped up in your loving arms. Father, we repent of our sins. Remind us of our baptism if we have not repented of sin. Father, I pray that today would be the day of salvation. Holy Spirit, move in our hearts. Sanctify us to be the people that you are calling out of darkness into marvelous light. Let us glorify you to your glory and honor for now and forevermore. Amen.